Why don't you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, please? Second Timothy chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 16 through 18. And the message entitled, False Teaching is Contagious in a Bad Way. If you have a contagious disease, you don't want to infect others. If you do, you're evil. False teaching and heresies have always made their way into the church, as you know. So it is no surprise that there are so many warnings in the scriptures. And all the warnings are to believers, not to the non-believer. The non-believer is lost. He is deceived. You and I used to be there. The warning are to the Christians. The Apostle Paul told Timothy about his commitment to protect the gospel, as well as giving him some good counsel on how to protect the people he was shepherding at Ephesus. Uh, from the false teachers and false teaching. As you know, Paul the Apostle left Timothy there at Ephesus. Um, and in chapter 2 here, verse 14 through 15, Paul had um, uh, counseled Timothy from the positive perspective first. In verse 14, the first part, Timothy was to rehearse the word to the people by reminding them of certain enduring faithfulness and suffering. God has called us to suffering sometimes. God allows us to go through some things, and we'll never learn some things apart from suffering. Now, as Americans, we really don't know anything about suffering in the church. All I know is what I read about suffering. The rest of the church has lived in suffering for about 2,000 years. And yet, God will allow some things to happen. But secondly, there, still in 14, Timothy was to refuse war over words by people by charging them not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. So there are people who just like to hear themselves, you know. Uh, it's just, it just doesn't take long to talk to people. They just love to hear themselves. Um, Geraldo, Rivera, um, um, O'Reilly, you know, they love to hear themselves. Um, then in verse 15, uh, Timothy was to represent himself to God as a competent expositor of the word for the people by diligently presenting himself to God, who did not need to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. If you're a man or woman of the word of God, do you realize what protection you have for you? That you can be dropped anywhere in the world and sit under somebody starts teaching and you can say, that's absolutely biblical, that is absolutely unbiblical. Do you know what protection that is? Not everybody has that. Not everybody knows God's word. Though they may go to church. Notice then Paul did the same from the um, negative side. To protect the gospel, Paul counseled Timothy to shun profane and idle babbling. And he uses two individuals as his objective lesson. He uses real people. There are three things that characterize Paul's counsel to shun profane and Idle babbling here in verses 16 and 18. Let me read for us. But shun profane and idle babbling, for they will increase to more ungodliness. And their message will spread like a cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. The three things that characterize Paul's counsel to shun profane and idle babblings are as follows. First, the command to shun. The first part of it is a command. Secondly, the commentary on why they are to shun. 
The rest of 16, the first part of 17. And 30, the culprits they are to shun. The end of 17 and all of 18. And so let's begin with the command to shun. But shun profane and idle babbling. So notice the command stands in direct opposition to what Jess has been stated in the previous two verses. The adjective here, or the adjective, is an adversative contrasting conjunction. The word but. The positive counsel was given in verse 14 and 15. The negative counsel is given now in this verse. And positive and negative are all true. Very important. Uh, Many times the negative uh, things, if we obey them, they bring about positive results, right? God said you can eat of everything except one thing. Now be careful of the humanistic, philosophical, and psychological philosophy says for every one negative you have to give two positives. Really? Show me that in scripture. We have destroyed the world because we believe in the goodness of man. And so we pamper him. And when you give a man an inch, he wants a foot, then a mile. And I don't think you're any different. We're all made of the same stuff. And so we have to be careful what is biblical and what is not. The scriptures often state both the positive and the negative to comprise complete and the full counsel of God's word. And so, your children, how often you tell them, don't do that. Is it because you hate them? No. Don't go there. Because you love them. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy here, chapter 2, verse 22, uh, a little further on down that he is to flee youthful lust on the negative side, but then he is to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, with those who will call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart on the positive side. So life consists of both, you know. You have to stop at a red line. You have to go on a green line, okay. Don't confuse them. Again, contrasting conjunction there. But James 4, 7 tells us that we are to submit to God on the positive side. And we are to, on the negative side, uh, resist the devil and he will flee. You can't just submit to God and not resist the devil. You got to do both. Now notice the command. It's to shun profane and idle babbling. The word shun simply means to stand aloof. Um, to go around something. To step out of the way of something or avoid it. In other words, we as Christians don't go around looking for heretics. We don't just go around for, to find an argument. But when someone confronts us or we're aware of something within the church or our families, then we need to deal with it in the right way with the Word of God. The tense here is the present uh, imperative. Uh, continue to avoid as you are doing. So the command does not suggest that he's not doing that, but he's encouraging him to keep on doing what he's doing. Just as if your son's out there playing ball and you know, and he's doing real good. And you say, now, you know, keep, keep an open eye. Keep doing it. It's not that he's not doing it. It's that he's, he's been doing it. And that's what it implies here. Now, the same word is translated avoid in Titus. Listen to Titus 3.9. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. And we've all met people where you interact with them and they bring up the Ice Age and the Gap Theory and this and E.T. and everything else, okay? 
foolish conjectures that have no basis, no factual basis, no objective truth. Even the fact that, you know, how often you sit there and you, and you hear the television say, well, this is 20 billion years old. There's no basis for that. None whatsoever. But yet, that's the world that functions upon distorted truths and plain lies. Even though they know the truth, they don't profess it. They twist it. Now, the word profane is made up of two words, and it refers to a person who talks about the things of God as if they were ordinary or common. So there is no, um, no filter on their mind and their hearts. They talk about things of God like if they're talking about, you know, taking their dog for a walk or buying a car. There, there's no reverence. There's no honor. There's no fear whatsoever because there's really no understanding. Um, they're dead spiritually, but they're deceivers. The first word is banos, and it means to step, and the second bellows means a threshold. This would describe a person who would step over a threshold of a sacred place and defile it. Just arrogant. Just disrespectful. The word is used to identify the person and their activities in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, 4, 7, 6, 20, and in Hebrews 12, 16. An ungodly person, and we'll find this term as we move along, one who, in their own mind, they've created their own God, a permissive God, one that doesn't offend them, and they don't offend him or limit him, and they just kind of just live out their own, quote, quote, on morality and call it morality. The phrase um, idle babbling simply means empty words and that are sounded out. And if you look um, and listen to a lot of the things, you know, when I sit at home sometimes I look at some of the commercials and they're so insulting. I mean, empty words, just crazy. As if I have to be told as a parent to make sure my children get out one day and play. They've dummied down America so much that America doesn't even know it. Many of the commercials are so insulting. They're like for children. And for the most part, the majority of America flows with it. This compound word is used one at a time, and it is to identify the false teaching at Ephesus in 1 Timothy 6.20. Remember, Paul had warned the Ephesian elders back in Acts 20. Now it's come to fruition. It's here. Um, Heresies around there, false teachers. He's going to name some of them. And this phrase is used to identify the false teaching of these teachers, which uh, um, amounts to nothing more than fictitious uh, meanings, useless and empty chatter. And... um, I think politicians are probably the best example of this. They they talk so eloquent. They say such polished things, but it means nothing. There's there's nothing in the words. There's there's nothing in in, in what you're saying. Empty. The problem with not shunning certain things that are bad or evil is that you're influenced by them. Uh, when Woodrow Wilson 
who was a progressive liberal at, and president of Princeton University, he uh, spoke these words to the um, um, a parents group. Quote, I get many letters from you parents about your children. You want to know why we people up here in Princeton cannot make more of them than, uh, and do more for them. Let me tell you the reason we can't. It may shock you just a little, but I'm not trying to be rude. The reason is that they are your sons, reared in your homes, blood of your blood, bone of your bones. They have absorbed the ideas of your homes. You have formed and fashioned them. They are your sons. In those malleable, moldable years of their lives, you have forever left your imprint upon them. Now, he was a progressive liberal. What he was saying is, our progressive liberal agenda is not taking hold as fast or as good as we want. Because at that time, America still was moral and ethical and patriotic. The liberal progressive began in the 1900s. You see, when you're grounded and you're solid, you reject heresy. You identify it. But if you don't, you get contaminated. You get infected. You get sucked in. The command to shun does not contradict the command to give an answer to every person for the reason life is what makes them fear. Um, or to give a defense. We don't do it angrily. We don't do it militantly. We are willing to spend time with people to confront them on their views and give answers without being hostile. Um, if you don't accept it, the gospel, I just pray for you. Um, there's no notch on my bell. There's no personal gain on my part, except that you go from a lost position to a safe position, which is great joy, because I've been on both sides. Now I'm on the light side. I used to be on the dark side. Um, a defense for the faith is one thing where there is an exchange of words and concepts to provide the truth of the gospel and hope of salvation, as Second Timothy 2.24-26 says. Uh, these people are being held captive by Satan's will. And so we speak to them. We minister to them. And while we're doing that, we're praying that God would open their eyes. But there's no personal gain in terms of notches. There's no um, goal of winning an argument and, 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 and feeling good about making them feel bad. That's not what it's about. A person who is well known for their heretical stance is not really interested in truth, but simply in propagating their false doctrine. And we need to avoid them. Second uh, Timothy two twenty three and Titus three ten through eleven. Now it, it doesn't mean we don't confront them when they were coming to the church or they would come to one of our family members or friends or they talk to us. But it means that we don't go out of our way to just hang out with them and to just you know be open minded and just kind of have a good little pep talk together. That's what a lot what the merchant church does. They just come together and they say, okay, this is the verse. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And everybody walks away. Oh, that's great. But nobody walks away with any objective truth. Everybody has an opinion. Are you kidding me? Total deception. There are many who uh, pride themselves in their ability to debate by their use of words. Um, these individuals often twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Second Peter 3.17 tells us. Uh, he's referring to Paul's writings. 
These individuals pride themselves in belonging to the um, circle of elite ones, the academics, which uh, is a mark of carnality, 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 13. You know, and, and, and the whole agenda is that they think that they are the elite, they are the smartest, they know what is good for you, and, and therefore you just to submit. And this is what's coming down in all of our progressive education. Uh, common core is to dummy down the American child that cannot compete. Absolutely. It's insane. That's why our children can't compete in the market anymore. And they wanted the future. Throw Common Core out. Get back to the three R's. Reading, writing, arithmetic. Look what it did in the past. Amazing. These men produce bad fruit. Division, dissensions, contentions. A sense of having um, to persuade everyone about their particular bent on Scripture. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, but usually wrong. And so everybody has their own, quote, quote, interpretation out of context, apart from the cultural background, apart from the language that is written in, and they just read into whatever they want. And people kind of settle for that kind of stuff. So the command to shun is not an option. It's an absolute command. Now, notice, secondly, 16 down to the first part of 17, the commentary is why, uh, why they're to shun them. For they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will uh, spread like a cancer. Now, we're familiar with cancer. It's not pretty. The commentary reveals their character. Their character is not static, but is leading them onward. Sin does not stand still. It goes forward. The word will increase simply means to beat forward, to advance, to proceed. The word is used by Jesus to increase in wisdom and by Paul that the night is far spent and his advancements in the Jewish religion and the scriptures. Their destination is to a life that is unlike God. Notice, ungodly. It means having no respect, no reverence, nor honor. For God or the things of God. So this deals with the vertical. This way. Which is the most important. If you don't have a right relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, you have no relationship to God. If you don't have the vertical compass right, your horizontal compass is all off. You may be right once in a while like that broken clock twice a day. But not all the time. Their message does not promote spiritual life. That leads to godliness. The focus is on the false teachers who will advance in their spiritual deterioration and decay, the instruments of the message. So there is personal accountability and, and, and responsibility, as God would have it here, to those who are propagating the lies. Now, there's a certain amount of thrill, a certain amount of, of, um, of, of attraction that you can get over on people, that you can manipulate them, that you can conquer them, that you can deceive them. Um, it's intoxicating like drugs. A man once um, dreamed that he was in hell and when he was asked to give an account, and of course, 
Nobody can go to hell and come back. But um, he asked him about his account. And they said, um, asked him if there were flames there and suffering there and uh, wrecked and maligned creatures with whom he had to associate. And if um, the place resounded with oaths of blasphemy, he said the following, yes. But there was something far worse than that. I was compelled to face my influence. I knew that I deserved punishment for I had scorned and rejected Jesus Christ. But my sorest pain was to see what the effect of my life had done upon others. You and I hold a greater accountability and responsibility to God because of who we are and what we know and what he's done in our lives. And therefore, people have their eyes on us, our children, our wives, our husbands and friends. And we have an awesome responsibility. None of us are perfect. None of us are sinless. But if you're a Christian, you can live the life of Christ. No one has been given a second-hand salvation. And so we need to understand the awesome responsibility of our influence on others. The scriptures are clear that the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the character of evil men will increase. Certainly, if you're anywhere from 40 to 60 or 70, you've seen the great increase in our nation and enlightening form the last 10 to 15 years. Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, Second Timothy 3.13 says. The um, stressful times of the last days will open the door for these deceivers to deceive. Second um, Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7 says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. They say they're Christians, but there's no transforming power in them. They're denying it. A key word today in society is, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. What does that mean? Are you spiritual on the, on the side of light or darkness? And that's the point. They deny the power thereof, and from such people turn away, for of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by the various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there are people who come to church simply to be entertained or to go fishing or to get caught while others are fishing. <laughs> It goes both ways, okay? People come to church for many different reasons. Some people come to find a wife, find a husband. You know, and they think they're going to get a little goldfish, and they find out they get jaws. <laughs> then they say, oh, you deceived me. Where do you think you were fishing? All of us were in the world. Wow. The Holy Spirit prophesied in latter times 
in the age of grace that there would be some who would depart from the faith and giving heed to the student spirits and doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4.1. That's the periodical departure every once in a while through the age of grace. The falling away is in Thessalonians. So every once in a while through the age of grace, a great falling away happens. People get deceived. Again, only Christians are warned about deception. You don't warn dead people. You preach to make them alive. You warn the believer who is alive. The scriptures are equally clear as to the increasing evil content of their message. In Second Peter two, twelve through 14, the content caters or centers on their sin nature. Listen carefully. He says, But these, like natural brood beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will perceive or receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own descriptions and deceptions. They will feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a hard train in covetous practices and are accursed children. They are smooth, they are sharp. There used to be a song, Smooth Operator. The rapper. <laughs> well, every generation, ladies and gentlemen, they use carnal means to allure people and enslave them. Many pastors and leaders today in the church are more carnal than the people. So they use carnal means to motivate carnal people because they know it works. And so in reality, the leaders are more carnal than the people they minister unto. Pastor Chuck um, used to tell when he was in Foursquare where he was at this meeting and all the, um, the head guys of the district or whatever, they would go, okay, what are we going to do? We're going to put, you know, we're going to have our balloons and we're going to send them up and they, all these carnal programs, right? And then the head guy said, okay, everybody who's in favor, stand up. Everybody stood up except Chuck. Those are few to sit and oppose all the carnality. But the amazing thing is that now Chuck is gone. Many of the guys he trained are just as carnal. Using carnal motivations to merchandise God's people. You see, the problem is you and I, ladies and gentlemen, I got to deal with my flesh every day. I got to use the word God. If not, I go there also. Listen to Second Peter two eighteen through twenty says, "For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh through lewdness. The one who have actually escaped—that's Christians—who actually escape from those who live in air, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are self uh, slaves of corruption." For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Christians, 
They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. If you think that you could not be deceived, then you're a candidate for deception. If I was not a person who stayed in the word of God, I, your pastor, would be gone. The only reason I have stood 42 years the way I have is because of God's word. Nothing less. They will be judged by God more severe due to their knowledge of righteousness and having turned from it. Second Peter chapter 2, 21 through 22 says, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow or a pig having washed to her swallowing in the mire. Now that's a proverb. It doesn't mean that you're not a pig if you're a Christian. We're all pigs. We're all dogs that have been converted to be children of God. And if I don't abide in Christ, I will go back to be a pig and a dog. It's real simple. It's not a theological statement that only pigs are lost and you're not a pig. No, no, no. It's totally devoid of what he's saying. The context speaks very, very clear. We've all had dogs and they throw up. What do they do? They go back and eat it, right? That's what dogs do. You remember how you lived? I remember how I lived. Now, do you think you don't have that same capacity today? I certainly do. You want to go sin? I'm ready. I'm a good sinner. By the grace of God, His Word, the power of His Spirit, and the submission to Him, it doesn't happen automatically. But all of us can fulfill that obedience through the Word and the Holy Spirit. And so the commentary on why they are to shun is for their own protection and certainly afterwards the protection of others. But it starts with you. Now notice thirdly, the culprits they are to shun. Hymenius and Philetus are of the sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. The two individuals are called out by name. Now people don't like when people call out by names. I call people out by names and people get upset. But they are identified by the phrase, are of this sort. This points back to they are said to be profane, being babblers. They are said to be those who will increase to more ungodliness. And they are said to be those whose message will spread like a cancer or gangrene. The word cancer, there is gangrene. It destroys, it just eats, it corrupts all the flesh and it goes to the bone and then deteriorates the bone. We're all familiar with that. And so here again, these people are pointed as though, you say, how dare Paul say that? He's speaking under inspiration. Not only is he speaking under inspiration, but he knew these men. He calls them out by name. He's talking to Timothy at the church of Ephesus, which he passed for three years. These guys could have been some of those elders that he's told 
spoke again, warned them in Acts 20. The name Hymenius comes from Humen, the god of weddings, and means belonging to marriage. What a contradiction. <laughs> a complete deceiver spiritually. You're wedded to Christ and they try to deceive you? <laughs> what a contradiction. He's mentioned only one other time when he is identified with Alexander and both are said to have made shipwreck of the faith in 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. Now, this illustration will serve every generation. Regardless of how modern we are, we will always know this. A ship has a point of departure and a, and a point of destination. And when those people get on that ship, it takes out from point A to point B. And if it doesn't get to point B, we know it left point A. That means there's disaster. Few times, few will be saved in shipwrecks. But many are lost. And that's the point here. He's talking to these people who had high privilege of having begun to journey. And they made shipwreck. They made shipwreck of the faith. They are both delivered to Satan by Paul in hope that they learn not to blaspheme in 1 Timothy 1.20. The fact that his name is mentioned first in both places. Probably means he was the leader of the two. There's always people who are just, you know, we, when we grew up, you know, there was that guy that always kind of led the charge to sin, to do something. I dare you or whatever, you know what I mean? Always. The Apostle Paul, in fact, is calling him a heretic, one of the opponents of the very Apostle. He probably knew him. Philetus means beloved. This is the first and only time that he is mentioned. And the man is believed by some to have been a disciple of Hymenius, which again, when you have disciples, they become worse than you. If you're, you're, if you're a heretic and you disciple others, they become worse than you. Jesus said, the Pharisees, you make a child twice worse off the child of the devil. They probably were from Ephesus and could have been prominent persons since um, he calls them out by name. They could have been the main instigators of the apostasy. They could even have been two of the elders that Paul again warned in Miletus in Acts 20, 29 through 30. Um, in the 42 years of, I've been in ministry, um, I can think of people who were serving the Lord and just right on the button with the word and used by God mightily. And, um, and they were deceived, uh, sucked into other things, and they became deceivers. Now, some may not have been born again, but not the ones I knew. Because you cannot function on the level and the efficiency in the life of God and the Spirit and teaching and not be born again the way they were used. There's no way. There are two of the five mentioned by name to Timothy as 
a warning to the church. Phygelus and Hermogenes had turned away from Paul, 2 Timothy 1.15. Demons had forsaken Paul, having loved this present world in 2 Timothy 4.10. So Paul calls names, not because he hates them, but because he loves the body of Christ. It's just that simple. Anytime any one of these people turn and repent, they should be embraced in the body. You observe to make sure the repentance is genuine, but if they have genuinely repented, we welcome them back. No problem. The failure of these two men is described in three ways. They had strayed concerning the truth, and the word stray there means to miss the mark. That's what sin is. From an old archery game, you miss the hoop, you miss the mark. We get our word target from it. The word appears three times in the New Testament. First um, Timothy one six and six twenty one in here, and they are of those who did not rightly divide the word of truth, but were sh- made shipwreck of the faith. So the only time a ship gets in trouble is if that captain is unfamiliar with the waters, or he deviates from what he knows he should do. If he gets careless or negligent or arrogant, proudful. The word truth, Elysia, is the same as in verse 15, which always is used for reliability and genuine message of the gospel in the pastoral epistles. It's a key word, and um, it appears um, 15 times in the pastoral epistles, truth. Objective truth, truth about God, sin, the devil, hell, things that you can count on, not speculate, not, well, maybe it's true. No, that you can count on absolutely. They had taught contrary to what the scriptures teach, notice, in reference to one of the essential doctrines which teaches, touches salvation, the doctrine of the resurrection. They said it had already passed. This is not a light matter. They taught two possible things, maybe. That the resurrection was fulfilled in a spiritual sense, being raised after water baptism to life. That's one possibility. Or the other one that just down and outright denied a future resurrection. But either way, It was the resurrection, the cornerstone of the gospel. And Paul doesn't take it lightly. The resurrection, that cornerstone of the gospel is found throughout the gospels, throughout the epistles, everywhere. In the day of Pentecost, Peter proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is based on his resurrection that our sins are guaranteed to be forgiven and that we are promised the same Holy Spirit power to live out the life of Christ to his glory by the grace of God. Of God. In fact, the implications are several. Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19, if we deny the resurrection, which means these individuals were denying, they were saying this, that our preaching is in vain, that our Christian faith is in vain, that Christ is not risen, that we're still in our sins, that those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, that those um, that we are all men most miserable having hope in Christ only in this life, and that there is no judgment of the just or the unjust, 
And the biggest is that God is a liar. And we can continue on. When you deny a carnal doctrine that's based on the atonement, you are implying a lot of things that go against Scripture. So you must make a great emphasis on doctrine. What is it that you believe? Is it go along with what the Scriptures teach? Because it has ramifications. The Greek concept of the body, as you know, was that it was a prison for the soul and one day would be released. So the Greeks were kind of waiting for that freedom. Therefore, the idea of a physical resurrection was only to be imprisoned again. So it was repugnant to the Greeks. They had a saying, Soma Sema, the body is a tomb. (laughs) And sometimes some people have that concept even in Christ. I am not imprisoned by this body. If God would allow me to be in a vegetative state for whatever reason, an accident or something, in a way that I do not understand, God is in control of my life. I never have the right to take my life. My life is not my own. God will take my life when he chooses. This is not a prison. This is a tent to communicate the glory and the words of God. That's what it is. The Gnostics later developed the entire system of dualism. Remember that matter was evil and the spirit was good. And therefore, in your body, which is physical, you can do anything. You can drink, you can fornicate, you can commit adultery, you can steal. It doesn't matter because it doesn't affect your spirit. And then you can still worship God with your spirit. Wow. What a nifty little religion. And that's what First John was written for. Gnosticism was already at the end of the first century. It fully developed in the second century. Now, notice they overthrew the faith of some. The word overthrow means to overturn or destroy and found only one other time in Titus 1.11. Titus is com- commanded to stop the mouths of insubordinate and idle talkers and deceivers whose mouth must be stopped due to the fact that they subvert whole houses by teaching them, which they ought not for dishonest gain. And so, again, not a suggestion. And there are always people who make merchandise of the people of God. One way or the other. It's the curse of the ministry. People are always begging, always pushing, always conniving for money. And it's a bad example. The Apostle Paul is um, labeling them as dangerous heretics who oppose the true faith in the church. They were not only responsible for the introduction of false teaching, but for the shipwreck of others' faith. Some. Now, Jesus said, it would be better for you to tie a stone mill around your neck than to dissemble one of the little ones. That's Jesus speaking, okay? So, people say, oh, no, my, my God's a God of love. So is mine. Mine loves incredibly. He loves you so much, he died for you. For me. But his love is not permissive. It doesn't condone sin. It makes provisions for sin, but it doesn't condone sin. They being deceived, 
became deceivers of other men and women regarding spiritual truth. To be deceived over a car, a house, or even physically, sexually is one thing. There is a loss. But to be deceived spiritually deals with your eternity. That is the greatest loss, ladies and gentlemen. All the rest sometimes can be made up, and when not, you've got to deal with it in Christ. But when you're talking about spiritual matters, they're eternal. So, remember, this is the last will and testament of Paul, right? He's going to die. He's giving to Timothy the greatest important things before he dies. When someone's going to die, they don't say, okay, you know, son, make sure you wash the car next Monday. Take out the trash. Mm -mm. This is Paul's last will and testament. He focuses on doctrine. On deceivers. For three years, David um, Chagvas Hivili gave hundreds of lectures throughout his native Georgian Soviet Republic. He spoke on the technological revolution, the atom, modern medicine, and love in the advanced society. Then it was found that he was a janitor with no scientific training whatsoever. Chaghavaslisky evidently got inspiration from the place where he worked, the Georgian Academy of Sciences. He printed a card for himself as a professor, doctor of technical sciences. The newspaper is Vestia, said he soon had a busy lecture circuit with $20 an hour in pay, which you can see that this is a time back. And Levistia said he earned $820 on his first lecture tour. You remember the, um, um, the guy in America, um, Catch Me or something like that. He was a, he pretended to be a pilot, a, a surgeon, all this stuff. Catch me if you can. Amazing what some people do. First-rate deceivers. They know how to rip people off and deceive them. The church is a great fishing hole because pastors don't protect the flock. Pastors don't teach the word of God. The scriptures name people often for the sake of protecting the people from deception. Simon the sorcerer attempted to purchase the Holy Spirit for money, and Elamas the sorcerer attempted to turn Sergius Paulus from the faith, and they were dealt with severely in Acts 8.22 and 13.9-11. Blindness came upon Severe. Paul wasn't just a guy who abused his power. He couldn't just do that. It was God working through him in very severe ways. Phygelus Hermogenes turned away from Paul as well as others in Asia in 2 Timothy 1.15. Now, apparently, there were other matters for him to name these guys. It wasn't just to blackball them. It wasn't just to mark them or marginalize them. 
That, that is a potential in us. We have to be real careful when we do name people that we make sure we know what we're talking about and that we have evidence and we're just not flipping our lip. Because that is a common thing in, in the church and in our nation. The Internet is master of that. Anybody can say anything about you and your life and your character is ruined. Alexander, the coppersmith, did Paul much harm and resisted their words. Therefore, he warned them, knowing he would be so to other believers in 2 Timothy 4, 15, 14 and 15. Now, was Paul a bitter man? Was Paul just a grumpy old man? No. Diotrephes. Love to have the preeminence and rule over people. Opposed John and excommunicated anybody who... Who, sided, who did not side with him in Third John, verse 9 and 10. Now, all these things that I've mentioned, they have, they've happened through the church age at different times, different generations, everything. They still continue. And there's more stuff, other stuff that people do. Pastors rip off women. Women come in to seduce pastors. Guys come in looking for girls, vice versa. People come in with their new way to raise money. You know how many times I get calls for raising money? Last time the guy says, well, don't you guys need any? Because I said, no, we don't need that. We, we, we're fine. He says, oh, so you don't need money? No, my God takes care of me. He said, well, I've never heard of that. I said, really? What are you calling me for then? I'm a Christian. But these guys can do it. They will come in, they will promise they will raise a million dollars. Of course, they get their chunk, right? But then, who's doing the work? God or us? God took care of us. He gave us this building. God led us to build a gym. He took care of it. We do medical outreaches. God takes care of it. He drops a radio station in our laps. Not even looking for it. I don't want to change the rules after 42 years. I, he's doing a great job. I don't want to mess it up. The scriptures are very clear about the um, responsibility of the watchmen of the city. Um, Ezekiel 33, 1 through 20. Who's to warn the people that the blood of the people not be upon him. And for that reason, my motive is because I love you, but it's also a selfish motive. I don't want to be accountable when I stand before Jesus Christ. I want him to recognize that I fed you. I gave you the full counsel of God. I warned you. I stood fast in the word of God. There's nothing more important for me. I'm just like you. I'm from among you. I'm one of you. I don't walk on water. And it's the word of God that has held me. If it wasn't for the word of God, your pastor would have been gone long, long ago. For this reason, we name those teachers who teach that you can have anything you want by faith. We name them by name. Because they're teaching heresy. We name those who teach Christian psychology. 
I believe Dr. Dobson has undermined the pulpits of America more than anybody else. Because he teaches that pastors are not qualified to counsel people. Really? Do we believe that people today have gone through worse things than people in the time of the Roman Empire? Where did they go? They got born again. You think the people in Roman Empire didn't see their mothers raped, their daughters, their parents killed? What'd they do? They got born again. They trusted the Lord, not psychology. It's all humanism. And therefore, he has undermined the pulpits of America. That unless you have your little degree, with your little psychobabble indoctrination, now you're qualified. I beg to differ. You're disqualified with your credential. All you need is a BA, born again. Be full of the Holy Spirit, full of God's word. You'll do just fine. For that reason, we speak against the extreme Pentecostalism that manipulates people or the seeker-friendly and marketing of, uh, of many and the emergent church that it gets away from objective truth. Not because we hate them, but because we love you. And we love God and we love his word. For that reason, we should always be ready to affirm and commend also those men and women who are profitable for ministry. Not all negative. There's so many great people that do a great job. They stand fast. They're preaching the word. They're encouraging people. They won't compromise. Thank God for them. And so... The culprits they are to shun are dangerous heretics. Paul doesn't sugarcoat it. He's about to die. His whole motivation is that Timothy might know how to conduct himself in the church of God. And constantly it's doctrine, 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 doctrine. So the counsel Paul gave to Timothy to shun profane and vain babbling has been characterized by the command to shun. It's not an option. It's a command to all of us. The commentary on why they are to shun is for their own protection. And the culprits they are to shun are dangerous heretics. You think it fits today? Absolutely. More than ever before. I'm excited about 2016. What are you going to do, Lord? How are you going to do it? Because it's getting funky. We're going to have to trust God more than we have ever trusted God before this year. That's good. John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts. And we thank you for your mercy and your grace. All that you've done, Lord, in spite of us. And yet you've used us, Lord, and we have just been in awe of you. Lord, we thank you for the faithful that stand with you. Come, work hard all week long, and they partake, they serve. Lord, they give of themselves. We thank you for them. And Lord, we pray 
Even this morning, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, Lord, they would call upon your name and ask forgiveness, and you would save them. If you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. Maybe you're over the internet, or maybe you're hearing on radio. This is your prayer of repentance, and God's going to forgive you of all your sins, bearing the deepest ocean, putting behind his back. Never mention them again. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.